my brother and me fun to be a composer. And then during the past week, I got to listen to them playing this stuff here at rehearsals, and uh, I saw all the horrible errors that I made. Too late to change them, you get to hear all the mistakes, too. And uh, it's uh, not really a great piece of music, but we might be able to get off a couple of times in it. So, uh, all right, Zubin, hit it.
Howdy folks, this is Scott Parker. You're listening to episode 4 of Zappacast for August of 2011. On this episode, we're going vaudeville on ya. I think about you day and night It's only right to think about the girl you love And hold the child so happy together If I should call you up and rest or die And you say you belong to me And it's my mind Imagine how the world could be So very far, so happy together We got lots of music in store for you in this episode, and we're going to unveil our new roundtable discussion panel segment a little later on in the show. The era that we're taking a look at this time is the band that's commonly known as the Vaudeville Band, or the Flo and Eddie era of the Mothers. This was a band that rose out of the ashes of the original Mothers of Invention, which disbanded in August of 1969. In the months that followed, Frank Zappa busied himself with many different projects, editing together the ultimately unreleased 12-LP set history and collected improvisations of the Mothers of Invention, filming the Uncle Meat movie, and playing a few gigs with a new band called Hot Rats. However, in early 1970, the wheels of fate were in motion once again as Frank was offered the opportunity to hear some of his classically-oriented compositions performed by the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Zubin Mehta. The only catch was that the brains behind this offer wanted a synthesis of Frank's now-defunct Mothers of Invention ensemble playing along with the orchestra. Frank agreed to this plan and set about assembling what he later referred to as a Mothers of Invention sort-of group, consisting of ex-mothers Ray Collins, Don Preston, Billy Mundy, Ian Underwood, and Motorhead Sherwood, along with drummer Ainsley Dunbar and bassist Jeff Simmons, both of whom have been working with Frank in recent months. Following a short warm-up tour of the new lineup, the concert with the L.A. Philharmonic went ahead on May 15, 1970 at the Pauley Pavilion at the University of California in Los Angeles. The piece you heard at the top of the show was a bit of the orchestral section from that concert, a piece known as 200 Motels. In the audience at that concert were Mark Volman and Howard Kalin, the vocalists for the Turtles, a band that had been jokingly referenced on the cover of the Freak Out album back in 1966. The Turtles had recently disbanded. Mark and Howard were then embroiled in a nightmare of contractual issues stemming from the breakup of the Turtles. And backstage after the Pauley Pavilion show, when Frank offered them the opportunity to work with him in a new rock and teenage combo, they jumped at the chance. And a new lineup of the Mothers was born.
new Mother's lineup consisted of Frank Zappa on guitar and vocals, Mark Bowman and Howard Kalen on vocals, Jeff Simmons on bass and vocals, Ainsley Dunbar on drums, Ian Underwood on keyboard, sax, and woodwinds, and a brilliant new face in the band, George Duke on keyboards and trombone. After a brief but intense period of rehearsal, they took to the road, playing their first gig on June 12, 1970 at the Municipal Auditorium in San Antonio, Texas. performance of the vaudeville band in san antonio 1970 now as we like to occasionally remind you on the zappa cast um, some of these audio selections that you're hearing are actually very poor quality but you have to remember that they are included here for their historical value and in many cases that's all we got 
Over the next several months, this lineup would tour the United States and Europe, film material for a documentary film about Frank for the Dutch VPRO TV network, and prepare for the filming of Frank Zappa's first ever feature film, a filming about how touring can make you crazy called 200 Motels. They also found time to record material for an album called Chunga's Revenge, which was released as a Frank Zappa solo album. The album featured Mark and Howard renamed respectively the Fluorescent Leech and Eddie, owing to contractual issues that prevented them from appearing on an album under their real names. Here now are two selections from that album, both previewing the material to be found in the 200 Motel score, Road Ladies and Would You Go All the Way, on the Zapcast. Sad when you go out on the road. Oh, there was one time in Minneapolis. Don't it ever get lonesome? Don't it ever get sad when you go out on a 30 day tour? You got nothing but groupies and promoters to love you. A pile of laundry by the hotel door. Don't it ever get lonesome? Don't it ever give a young man the blue? Don't it ever get lonesome? Don't it ever make a young man? Some of the most terrible shit you ever know.
It's time for a brand new um, segment of the ZappaCast. This is our uh, roundtable discussion where we're going to um, assemble a panel of renowned Zappa experts to talk about the subject that we're talking about on the show. So here today we have, of course, the very Reverend Andrew Greenaway and uh, Professor Mick Eakers of the University of Bogner Regis. Hello, gentlemen. <laughs> you can see I worked that one out in advance, can't you? So <laughs> you did, didn't you? Yeah, you didn't warn us. Yes, there are Bogner Regis. I know. Okay. Is there a University of Bogner Regis? I guess we should uh, find that out. Yes, there is. I think. Oh, hey. <laughs> so we're we're talking uh, vaudeville band and. Um, I know both of you guys, I believe, are are fans of the vaudeville band. Mick, you've seen, you saw them live, did you not? I saw them when they did their first show at the uh, Bath Festival in 1970. Okay, what and do you remember cool. about the Bath Festival? Very little, to be frank. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> 1970. I was, my initial reaction, I was, to be quite honest, I was a bit disappointed. The sound was very, very bad anyway, a long way back. I'd heard a lot about it, and I, I was a big fan of the earlier band because I saw the original band. Ah. And so I think like a lot of people, I was thinking, you know, I'm not really sure about this, and I can remember thinking there's some good guitar playing going on and not being too sure about the rest of it. Did you know who Mark and Howard were at that point? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it had been all over the, the, the music press that, you know, he'd started again and he got the two guys from the Turtles, which we all thought, well, that's interesting and that's very funny, and what's it going to be like? Mm-hmm. Um, but as I say, the, the Bath Festival was was astonishing. I mean, Frank and the Mothers were just like one of about twenty bands. And were the, were the Mighty Zeppelin on that bill? Yes, they were. The what? Yeah, Zeppelin. Yeah, I mean, they were just Zeppelin. It was, it was astonishing. Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd with the the orchestra, I think, doing Adam Hart Mother, if I'm not mistaken. And the sound really was absolutely appalling, and you could just sort of hear these two guys shouting. Away and then occasionally a bit of guitar solo. So I haven't got a lot to report about that. I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a tape of it now, so you know. But the sound quality pretty much bears yeah, I out. I've, I've, I've got a CD with with a recording of it, and it is, it's appalling quality. 
Yeah. But, it, so. Well, everything I heard from Beth, I mean, Zeppelin and uh, I don't think Floyd, the tape of the Floyd show was particularly great. You know, it just seemed to be very poor sound at that festival. It was, I mean, things are very primitive in those days. Yeah, the, record, you know, recording and all that. Very big one, yeah. So. Concentration Moon, as performed by the Mothers at the Bath Festival of Blues and Progressive Music in Shepton Mallet on Sunday the 28th of June 1970, about tea time. Now ladies, put your legs together, it's Professor Eakers. Hello and welcome to Zappa's Gear, a section of the Zappa cast dedicated to Frank Zappa's guitars, amplifiers, effects pedals, studio equipment and other musical devices. I'm Mick Eakers, and today I'm going to be talking about Frank's favourite guitar effects pedal for many years, the wah-wah. Frank Zappa was one of the first guitarists to use one. As he said more than once, he loved the noise they made, and the wah-wah pedal was a significant factor in the evolution of his guitar playing style. The electronic wah-wah effect was created, more or less accidentally, by Brad Plunkett in 1966. The American Thomas Organ Company had recently bought the rights to manufacture the Vox brand of amplifiers in the US. Vox at the time were riding high due to their association with the Beatles. Plunkett was working for them as a junior electronics technician and he had been tasked with redesigning the mid-range boost circuit of the new Vox Super Beetle amplifier so that the expensive switch could be replaced with a cheaper rotary knob. This is the kind of thing that big companies tend to do when they take over a smaller manufacturer. Plunkett built a prototype circuit and after testing it with an oscilloscope asked his colleague John Gennon to try it out with a guitar through an amplifier and speakers. At which point all the other engineers sat up and took notice of the sound. The circuit was quickly housed in the case of a volume pedal from a Vox Continental organ and consultant guitarist Del Kasher tried out his electric guitar through it. The wah-wah pedal had been born. For those of you who need to know such things, R.G. Keane explains how it works on the Technology of Wah Pedals website. It is either a bandpass filter 
or an overcoupled low-pass filter that exhibits a resonant peak just at its low-pass roll-off frequency. The resonant peak can be moved up and down in frequency by the player, and this makes for a striking emulation of the human voice, making a wah tone, or its tonal inverse, yow. So now you know. Vox launched the pedal in February 1967, marketing it for general use with keyboards, horns and vocals, and calling it the Clyde McCoy wah-wah pedal after the jazz trumpeter, who was famous for his wah-wah trumpet mute technique. Later they just called it the Vox wah-wah and also sold it as the Crybaby wah-wah. Marketing essentially the same product with different names is another thing that big companies tend to do. In Billboard magazine in 1967, the Vox US president, Joe Benneron, announced that it would result in major changes for the sound of music. The wah-wah pedal can be used with guitar or any amplified instrument or microphone, he explained. It offers startling effects. Its possibilities are unlimited. Indeed, it would find use with almost every amplified instrument, although few vocalists ever recorded with it. As it happened, Del Kasher had done some early session work with Frank Zappa and he had also played guitar on some early Mothers of Invention shows. He recalls telling Frank Zappa to get hold of a wah-wah pedal straight away. Which Frank duly did, likely from Manny's music store in New York while the Mothers were ensconced at the Garrick Theatre. As well as using it on stage, Frank Zappa used it on Stuff Up the Cracks from the Reuben and the Jets album recorded that July at Mayfair Studios in New York, and also on various tracks from We're Only In It For The Money, which was recorded later that summer. The story goes that Frank Zappa introduced the wah-wah pedal to Jimi Hendrix. Certainly, in July 67, Hendrix was playing at the Scene Club in New York, while Frank was at the adjacent Garrick Theatre with the original Mothers of Invention. Jimi came and saw the show and reportedly was fascinated by Frank's recently purchased wah-wah pedal, and bought one himself from Manny's music store the next day. Now, Hendrix would have been very much aware of the track Tales of Brave Ulysses, which had recently been released by Eric Clapton's band Cream. It featured heavy use of the new wah-wah pedal, and doubtless he was somewhat piqued at his arch-rival stealing a technological march on him, so small wonder that he was so fascinated to see Frank Zappa making the same sounds live on stage. Hendrix started using it right away on the sessions for both sides of his new single, Burning of the Midnight Lamp, which was recorded that July. By the end of the year, it had become the guitar effects pedals to own, its use having been showcased by Clapton and Hendrix. For various reasons, Frank Zappa's recordings with it will be delayed until 1968. According to Alice Cooper guitarist Michael Bruce, one day, backstage at a gig with the Mothers, he noticed that Zappa's wah-wah pedal was a Vox like his own, and as his was worn out, he decided to swap his one with Zappa's, a secret he kept for many years, finally owning up in his book No More Mr Nice Guy. And apparently the story doesn't end there. Later on, that same pedal was swapped again with Eric Clapton's wah-wah. It will be nice to know who's got it now. Musicians, eh? For one reason and another, Thomas Organ never properly patented the wah-wah pedal, and so there were a lot of copies and developments of the original Vox wah-wah circuit around in the 1960s and 70s. Frank Zappa probably tried most of them, and he considered that all the different makes had their own distinct sounds. The next wah pedal that Frank Zappa mainly used was the Maestro Boomerang. He said that he moved to the Boomerang because it added a certain amount of distortion, and he liked that. The Boomerang wah-wah pedal was one of a range of effects sold by Maestro during the 1960s. Maestro was a subsidiary of the Gibson Guitar Company, and perhaps their most famous or influential pedal was the original fuzzbox used by Keith Richards on the Rolling Stones' I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Like all the other units on the market, the Boomerang was a straight development of the original Vox circuit. The original Boomerang was a plain wah-wah pedal, but they soon brought out a revised version called the BG2, which usefully worked as a volume pedal when the wah-wah effect was switched out. 
The BG2 instruction manual says the boomerang received its name from the fact that it always returns to the exact original setting after scanning a wide range of harmonics. Boomerang was the first wire on the market and is currently the most reliable and effective. The boomerang circuit is responsible for what is known as the shaft sound. Big companies again, eh? Despite its larger case, it was quite a lot lighter than the Vox, and the dual use as a volume pedal was a useful innovation. The Boomerang enjoyed considerable sales success in the US during the heyday of the wah-wah pedal, and was manufactured from 1968 to 1979, when maestro production was stopped by Gibson's parent company, Norlin. Geoffrey Tease, classic wah-wah restorer and boutique pedal manufacturer, and probably the world's expert on wah-wah pedals, says that the original series Boomerang are his second favourite pedal, after the original McCoy. Tees now sells his pedals as the real McCoy range. The Boomerang was pretty much the only wah Frank used with the Flo and Eddie band. If you look closely at pictures of the famous Fillmore concert that John and Yoko appeared in, you can make out the distinctive shape of the Boomerang on stage. These pictures are also some of the earliest showing Frank using a British Orange Matamp OR200 guitar amplifier alongside his trussy Marshall 100 watt. But I digress. The boomerang pedal was likely destroyed, along with pretty much all of the mother's equipment, during the fire at the Montreux Casino later that year. Most of Frank's recorded guitar solos of the time used a boomerang wah-wah pedal, you can hear it all over the albums Chunga's Revenge, Live at the Fillmore and Just Another Band from L.A. In Guitar Player magazine, Frank Zabba gave this useful advice on how to use a wah-wah pedal. The first thing you don't do is tap your foot on it in time with the music. The two basics are to locate a notch in the pedal so it gets a mid-range sustain that is tuned properly to the amp EQ that you have, so you get a nice boxy sound out of it, to make all those stinking tones that teenagers really go for. And the other thing is to move it very slightly and put most of the action in the rear half of the pedal, because that's where you get most of the speaking-type sounds out of it. I hope you're paying attention, musicians out there. Eventually, Frank Zappa more or less stopped using wah-wah pedals on stage, the main reason being that he had started having his guitars modified with built-in pre-amplifiers and effects and the resultant high output overloaded the wire pedal, resulting in a bad type of distortion. But there was one last wire-wire pedal that passed through Frank Zappa's hands. It originally belonged to Ultra Zappa fan Deep Indochima. In 1988, he followed Frank Zappa throughout Europe on what was to be his last tour, carrying a Jim Dunlop crybaby wire-wire pedal in his baggage. Deep Indochima explained, I was listening to a lot of 1974 Zappa in 88. Also, I remember Dog Breath from the 1971 LA Live LP, the one with Billy the Mountain. The former had a great solo by Frank Zappa, with Wawa all over the place. So that is the reason why I carried my Wawa to Europe. I was young, and I liked the maestro's wah sound of yesteryear, which had been absent for a long time. Who knows, perhaps I was naive to think that Frank Zappa would stick his guitar through my wah if I happened to bump into him. At the Mannheim show, he met up with Dutch fan Nico Otten, who knew all the tunes and all the words of the songs. When Turning Again started, Otten knew that there was a line about Jimmy and his wah-wah, and excitedly told Shima that he should hand the wah to Frank Zappa when he was just about to sing that line. So precisely at that very moment, the pedal was handed to Frank, who was habitually on the lookout for the unexpected from the audience. Deepender recalls that he spotted it immediately. He sang the line, staring at this new object, while the rest of the band looked agog. Yet he remained steady, not missing a beat. The look on Ike Willis's face was a picture. And that was it. The wire was placed next to Frank's mic stand for the remainder of the gig. Deepender later met Frank Zappa in Rome, and handed him the Jim Dunlop case belonging to the pedal. And Frank immediately tossed the case to Merle Saunders, his guitar roadie, who just happened to be walking past, and said, Merle, put it with the wah-wah. 
Frank Zappa took all the moments in his stride as if these events were the most natural thing in the world. Well, that's enough from me for today, so I better hand you back to Scott and Andrew. If this sort of stuff is interesting to you, please do check out the Zappers Gear website at www.zappersgear.com dedicated to the book of the same name that I am writing on this very subject. Okay, guys, one more time for the world. Thank you very much, Professor. And now we're going to close out this three-part look at the Vaudeville Band with some material that was recorded at the Fillmore East in New York City on November 13th and or 14th, 1970. Um, this is uh, part of a cache of two tapes that came out of those uh, shows. And uh, it is taken from the tape that is known as Tape 2. It includes the sequence that is known as The Duke, uh, which featured Little House I Used to Live In, The Mud Shark, Holiday in Berlin, Easy Meat, and Cruising for Burgers. Uh, those of you who um, are curious about the origins of such things will hear the beginnings of the guitar solo vamp in Inca Roads in this piece as well. So this is taken from the bootleg that is uh, known as Freaks and Motherfuckers, which was included as part of the Beat the Boots Volume 1 package. So I uh, hope you enjoy it, and uh, we'll be back very shortly with the second part of our three-part look at the Vaudeville Band, right here on the ZappaCast. We're going to begin with a song from Bernd Winiasinovich, which has the operating stage title of the Duke, but encompasses items from side one, side two of Bernd Winiasinovich.